When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Get to the Good Part. I am Chris. And I'm Aaron. Ryan is currently tripping back from the rainforest of Brazil, where he spent time with the Hovitos tribe, but asked us to carry on while he's running back to the U.S. with new items for the Marshall College Museum. We're breaking into Chapter 20, which starts with Parzival pretty much doing the same thing that he has done for the past six months. We start off with him going through the quatrain. The captain conceals the jade key in a dwelling long neglected but you can only blow the whistle once the trophies are collected. And this is what he's been beating his head with for six months. Six and months. really, it's, I know. And the odd part here is that when, he, when we enter this chapter, it's him after he's put on the Oasis goggles. So he's literally sort of reappearing in his stronghold now, uh, his stronghold of Falco. And it's an armored dome. So the first thought that comes to my mind is Doctor Evil's moon base. Ah, that's awesome. I, I mean, it, 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 it it's. I, I wonder if there's like anything else that that could possibly be com, be compared to, or maybe even like a 007, whatever the the moon was. There a moon base in one of the James Bond movies? Yeah. It had to have been like an older Roger Moore one. Yeah, if, if there was. I haven't seen those movies in a while, and I didn't actually get through some of the older ones, to be perfectly honest. But uh, I'm sure there was some really cool lair that uh, would totally work in this situation. Uh, maybe I'm thinking Moonraker, but it's been so long since I've yeah. seen that particular movie. I don't remember if there was like a lunar base or something along those lines. Could but, be. you know, if if you were going to spend money to buy a base... It feels like something out of a hollowed-out asteroid. And granted, it does say that that's pretty much all he could afford. But I, I got to wonder if you're going to code it yourself, could you kind of do more with the asteroid, I guess? If he was going to build some random 80s, you know, pop culture-themed building, you know, like let's say he was going to put this, the Sears Tower on his asteroid so he could do the Ferris Bueller thing. Can he? I I don't think he'd be able to do that for free, right? Because if it's yours, it, it it says in there that he could do whatever he wanted on it, so he could, he could do whatever he wanted it on it. But it doesn't necessarily rule out that there are limits to it, because I would imagine you'd still have to. Somebody probably co you know created a you know like you can go to the, like the three D warehouse on Google if it's still Google that owns it and download you know, 3D uh, files of buildings and all kinds of weird stuff. Uh, so you're thinking there might be like copyright rules where you'd have to buy the 3D renderings to, to actually put something on the moon if you didn't directly code it yourself. Well, yeah, think about it. If somebody spent the time to code 
uh, a building that appeared in a movie and they took the time to look at the the stills from the movie and really code it like super awesome. Wouldn't you want to sell the rights to that? Yeah. I would. Yeah. And and you know that has to be the case uh, because it, it seems later on when we get into the expenses that it gets rather into the minutia of digital expenses as well. Yeah. So that seems like a thing. So I could see where it's kind of like, okay, well, if you want to buy this digital layer, then you're going to have to buy the rights to the blueprint, I suppose. Yeah. Just set it on your place. Or if you're going to build your own, are you buying the materials? Are you buying the, or the blueprint for the materials? Like if I'm going to hollow this thing out, do I need to buy the equipment to hollow it out? Am I buying the metal plates? Yeah. Uh, do you see what I'm kind of getting I at mean, there? yeah. Is he really coding it from nothing or is he basically pulling from templates? And that's where it's, it feels like there's a little bit of a divide. And, and I totally get this as diving maybe too deep into something completely worthless. But it's one of those situations where it's like you can elaborate on this, this f- fortress of solitude is really what this is turning out to be. And you could do something really cool. But it really, of all the things that that they get into, as far as elaborateness is concerned, it's, ah, this is my fortress that is heavily armored, and there's a bubble on an asteroid. Let's not talk about it anymore. Yeah. This is the money I had to buy this this space. But he says he spent the money on the asteroid, so I totally get that. Not a big plot of land. But then... I could imagine a ton of other things that I would want to stick on this asteroid. And no matter how small, keep in mind, this is a digital makeup. Like this could be a tiny planet where you can walk around in an hour. Well, he said it's a few kilometers, something like that. Mm -hmm. And that's not small. It's you could probably put a a reasonable sized city of buildings on it. Yeah. Yeah. At least a little town or something. But the idea that, you know, you could, it could be any gravity that you wanted it to be. So we're not talking about no gravity here. And if while we're talking about sort of breaking the rules, you could put grass on it if you wanted to. You could make it pretty if you wanted to. Put a putting green on it. Whatever you exactly. want. Whatever you want. But this this is of everything in the book. Like, I feel like this is the most neglected thing. And maybe there's something that I'm missing here. Like, there's there's a hint of something. Or maybe this reflects who he is. He's not only in solitude in his apartment from the last chapter, but this has become a cold, desolate fortitude. Maybe it just got, you know, know, maybe it's just on the cutting room floor. Like maybe he did elaborate on it, but something had to get cut out. Maybe. Yeah. Because he does go into a lot of detail about a whole lot of things, but, and you're right. Like the more I think about it and now that you've said it, it's like, it it is kind of, I don't know if underdeveloped is the right word, but it's uh, it there was opportunity missed here. Well, again, it, if he had gone and he would planted a bunch of flowers and had grass and it was beautiful and sunny, that would be dramatically different than the personality that he currently has in this place in his life and in the book. Mm-hmm. So I, now that I'm thinking about it, I'm kind of like if if the asteroid was meant to represent himself as a place that he could hole up and stick himself in the ground, basically, you know, put your head in the ground, stick your head in the sand, on top of the paranoia that no one's allowed to come and visit unless he grants the capability for them to do that. 
which I thought was another interesting thing, that he says this is the one place he felt truly safe, which the flip of that is that he considers that, by that statement, more safe than the room he is in in the real world. Trippy. Yeah. Like somebody could break down the door, bust through a wall, or deliver food. <laughs> it would potentially be less safe feeling than he f- actually feels while in the Oasis and in this fortress. Yeah, it's pretty much saying that he his whole existence is in the Oasis. It's That's his everything. It's ref- maybe a reflection of his life. It's, it's, he's collecting a lot of shit. But he really has nothing around him of, of very deep meaning. And in this chapter, you kind of dig into the loneliness. Yeah. But before we dig into the loneliness, if, if you were to create a stronghold, what, what, would, what would your stronghold look like, given the situation that he's in? Whew. Given the situation that he's in? Uh, yeah. Because there's paranoia here, right? Like... There are people that are after him that would be willing to kill him in both places. Uh, you know, it, maybe just a subtle layer of of paranoia here. What would you choose as a as a secure fortress? I, a couple of things come to mind. I could see um, the what was it the, the nineteen eighty nine Batman movie Batcave? Okay, because that's kind of you know. Hidden. When we say 1989, we're talking Michael, Michael Keaton. Keaton. Oh. Yeah, because it had the hologram. Did it have the hologram? It didn't have a hologram. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he it looked like it, there was that time when he picked up, um, what's her name? Starts with a K. Kim Basinger. Picks up Kim Basinger. She has this drug. He gets her in the car. Come on, I'll save you. And then they drive off and they're just going down this windy path. Stay with me. And then there's just, you see, like, oh, a wall of rock and she screams, but they just drive right through it. Yeah. The, you are correct that he does kind of drive through a wall, but that dialogue is not right. She only asks him, where are we going? And then he kind of like looks at her through his peripheral vision. And then she looks at the wall and then screams. I think you were confusing it with one of the other. I think you're confusing it with um, Batman returns. Not Batman returns. Any any one of those. Um, Batman begins. Yeah, yeah, Batman Begins. Anyone where he grabs the girl, sticks it in his car, takes her back to the cave. It feels like a bit of a pickup yeah. trope to me. No, but the the original uh, 1989 right. yeah. Michael Keaton Batman Batcave w- would be one of my contenders. I think the other one, That's which nice. is um, that I kind of thought of, was Karnak from Watchmen, which is Ozymandias's, um Antarctic lair. Yeah. And, and, like, and that came to mind because he's got the wall of screens, which is kind of like what came to mind when Parswell was talking about his own kind of control panels and monitors. Uh, I don't really like the idea of hanging out in Antarctica because I don't really like the cold. But, uh, but no one else does either. No one else does either. That, that's why I figured – you're going to be pretty safe there. It would almost be like going to the other pole to visit Superman. Right. Right. As far away from society as you can to just, you know, get away. Yeah. Why not? If if I was to put together my fortress, I, I think it would be it would be the island fortress from the Incredibles. Ooh. Now. That would be awesome. 
that would be hard. Like you would need a lot of AI minions, right? So I'd need guys that would be willing to go and kill people that came to the island. Now, granted, if we're following the same rules here, then no one could see it. So I would have to like get some ocean space on a larger planet or again, sort of craft out an asteroid into something that kind of resembles that. That's maybe smaller, but making that like invisible, like totally hiding that space off the map. And then having, again, my, my minion peeps kind of dealing with the missiles and the spaceships, because there was a lot of room for rockets and for storing all kinds of equipment. And, but at the same time, you just walk outside and it's this tropical island and a giant freaking volcano. And I always thought kind of having that really cool contrast between being a, an evil villain in a, not a place that's desolate, but a place that's tropical. Like I would want to live where I would vacation. That makes sense. Yeah, no, that definitely makes sense. But I got a little bit of a picture of the uh, uh, Superman three in that description, the kind of like yeah, hidden behind the rocks, that kind of supercomputer thing. Oh, yeah. Right, right, right. Yes, it's in that in that where you have to like take the donkey down. Yeah, through the through the cavern, out in the middle of nowhere. That's still still kind of desolate, but still, once you get there, it's kind of like it's out of the way, in the middle of nature, but still sort of hidden in a place nobody would imagine yeah. it would be, and and somewhat hidden in plain sight. So I can imagine doing something like that. Yeah, but. Regardless of where you would end up sticking your stronghold, you would still have to have some degree of governance over the larger system. And that's where he reflects on this election day for both the Oasis and the government. And he describes how he doesn't care at all about um, the, the regular uh, United States elections, yeah. but that he's more concerned with the Oasis. And he compares it to being on, on the deck of the Titanic and how voting for anyone in the U.S. was like rearranging chairs on the deck of the Titanic. The just being, it doesn't matter what order the chairs are in, the boat is fucking sinking. Yeah. You know what that made me think of is um, when we, we constantly have that discussion of did the Oasis create the, the problems in society that exist in, you know, in Parzival's today or, the, or, the, or vice versa? It made me – wonder if there's a little bit of that going on with the, with the voting, you know, maybe if you paid attention to these elections and maybe voted, things wouldn't be so bad. It wouldn't mm -hmm. be rearranging the, the deck chairs. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. I just feel like <sighs> ignorance of that kind of thing. People like, Oh, my vote doesn't matter. Like that's how things get shitty. Well, I, I think that if things are already really bad, and there's this level of complacency and this idea that there's no way to find anyone qualified. Well, let me put it this way. There's no one qualified that is able to rise above the noise of personalities, radical televangelists, movie stars, uh, and all of these other non-qualified social icons that it doesn't matter who gets into office. No one qualified is going to get into office is really what he was getting at. And, you know, when he published this book in 2011, this was before where we are now. Yeah. And I don't want to get political, but 
we just elected a year ago a guy whose only qualification was from a book called The Art of the Deal. Yeah, well, and to the same token, what was it, about a month ago, there was the whole question about whether Oprah was going to run. Yeah, and that's – and granted, I like Oprah, but that's just as scary. Uh, it's it's emboldened individuals who are like, this is where the bar is. Uh, I could I can step over the bar now. Like what there are – seriously, there's no qualification. Oh, there's a few of them. You've got to be born in the U.S. Okay, that's one. You've got to be over a certain age. That's two. What else? Got to be popular. Oh, that's it? <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> and you've got to be popular. Yeah. Like it, it's shocking that the qualifications there are are so low and that maybe the assumption was that only politicians, like professional politicians, would know how to raise money, how to get in front of people, how to tell them what they wanted to hear. And maybe that kind of reflects back in the book, or maybe the book was simply foreshadowing what eventually happened several years later, this idea that it's very difficult to find people who are qualified to be president for whatever that means. Yeah. And it sure seems like we're, we've gotten to that point today. It's, it's very hard to you know, look at the people that put themselves up on the stage uh, I find myself looking at the pool of candidates every so often being like, nope, 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 eh, nope, nope. And and those are the ones that have been politicians for a while. Uh, it, it really makes you rethink how the election process maybe should be tooled to to call on a public that might be more able to at least able to pass a certain degree or curriculum of education to to make them qualifiable to even even electable for that matter mm. uh it, it's uh and then from a group of those then vote amongst those something along those lines uh it's interesting at the very least it's interesting but if the only people that can make or surface to the point of being voted on are just people who are unqualified only people who like it youtube space then you kind of are feel like you're in a hopeless situation you feel like the boat's sinking you know it, the guy that was you know the guy that was piloting the ship you know wasn't a real captain <laughs> it was captain crunch <laughs> he doesn't really pilot ships but they figured they'd stick him on this giant boat and head him into a into into floating ice floating milk and then at, at the exactly and at that point you think yeah because he's so good with other things floating in liquids why not <laughs> And you're like, well, we see where that's gotten us. We're fucked. So it doesn't matter how you rearrange the chairs at this point. Anybody that ends up taking over is equally unqualified. Things start looking worse and worse and worse in this reality. <laughs> yeah, I'm really hoping. There are parts of this that I hope we go towards, like technology-wise. There are parts of this I hope we don't go towards politically and um, – I, I don't know, just in general, like the power crisis that they're going through. Yeah, it just doesn't sound very good. And I can – you get to this chapter and you're like, yeah, you know what? Maybe I would stick the visor on all day. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's as if the the story continues to reaffirm the need to escape. Yeah. And when you're – when this new world is now your economic center and it is your entertainment center – 
uh, people are just dropping their cars off and just throwing away the keys because no one's going to steal it. It costs too much to drive a car. That idea that the only realm you can exist in and escape from the drudgery of the real world is this freely accessible thing that can take you anywhere and make you anyone. Sounds like a good gig. I mean, who wouldn't do that? It's it's a it's a it's a drug. It I I I believe that it is a the opioid of the masses would be the oasis. But when we talk about elections, the one election that he says does matter because this is the realm that he exists in is the election for who I guess is going to run the oasis. And I say run more from like a political standpoint because obviously the race to control the oasis and to get the easter egg is about who's going to own the oasis but as far as from a governing perspective they mentioned two names cory doctorow and will wheaton and i knew will wheaton i've been aware of cory doctorow i've not read any of his books though I, I really wasn't aware of who he was until I started researching this chapter and kind of digging in. Because as we already know, Arnie doesn't toss in names that are just made up. Yeah. What is he used to or still writes for, was it uh, Boing Boing? Mm-hmm. Blogger and journalist for Boing Boing. Yeah. Science fiction author. Um, oh, yeah. And also an activist as far as liberalizing copyright laws. Also a proponent of creative common licensing for material uh, just uh just really neat and when i was thinking about this i was thinking okay that's a pretty good choice because the concerns of the oasis have a lot to do with digital rights management yeah and even to to a greater or lesser degree file sharing and uh and it seems that Cory Doctorow has a little bit of post-scarcity economics in his background as well, that he, he writes on it and is educated yeah. in it. And I thought, well, crap, that, that's almost qualification to be president in the U.S., for the real world. Well, uh, let me share with you what I found out about uh, Cory Doctorow. Okay. Um, of course, I did my Google search and I saw a quote by him, which is from one of his books, and the quote goes, never underestimate the determination of a kid who is time rich and cash poor. Ha! Oh my God, that's awesome. Uh, no, so check this out. So that's Holy from shit. that's from his book, Little Brother, which was published uh -huh. in 2008. And if you go to the Wikipedia page for it, uh, it's all about this 17-year-old hacker techno whiz from San Francisco. At one point, he and his best friend uh, – Escape school to play a massive mixed reality role game that partially involves a scavenger hunt around town. Wow. So that's, God, that just sounds like Ready Player One. Yeah, it sounds like Cory Doctorow may have had an uh, influence on some of the structuring of Ready Player One. Perhaps. That's, perhaps. I could totally see that. Yeah. I, I didn't dive that deep into it, but that's. But that fucking that quote. A, <laughs> definitely a nod this being the president definitely a nod in the direction of that author uh to acknowledge the fact that hey that was a great idea and i just took it to that next place yeah so then how does will wheaton's nod come in well will wheaton's been in a lot of sci-fi stuff he has he's still in a lot of he's in a lot of public media as far as uh, sci-fi is concerned still he's still a sort of a poster boy for the current geek culture 
He has a number of podcasts and online videos that involve geekery, be it games, sci-fi, whatnot. He's got a lot of guest spots on television shows like... Uh, Big Bang Theory. Big Bang Theory. So he's, as far as like geekdom is concerned, it's, there is a, a good niche of geek culture that sort of has him in the center of that, or, or at least involved in important parts of that. Yeah. And shit, he ends up reading the book. I know. How fun must that have been for him to read his name like that? Either, either it would be awkward because it's so flattering to be mentioned, or you'd love it because you totally think that you should be. <laughs> I guess it depends on how narcissistic you are. But okay, so if you were to elect somebody to be president of the Oasis, the only world that matters, like who do you think in 20 years that could be? Uh, who do you got? If still alive, and I don't, I'd like to think he'd still be alive, even in sort of like this sort of grandfathery, mystical, magey sort of way, Richard Branson. I think if there's anybody who gets it, it's him. Not only are we talking about a person who started up from scratch with a magazine in Europe and then's brought it so far forward to compete in an industry that's nearly non-competable, which is airline. And then to take that to the next place, which is space travel, he has the vision and the motivation and kind of the influence that I would expect that in the next 20 year, years, if he was still alive, he'd be kind of like the grandfather of that kind of technological movement. But if not him, and let's say he croaks for some stupid reason, then maybe Elon Musk? Yeah, I was going to say that sounds like uh, you were gearing toward is that type of influencer because he kind of he kind of feels a little bit like Halliday when you listen to him talk like he has a a subtle and basic but very in-depth understanding of a widespread number of things like he just makes an off comment about wouldn't it be great if we had a tunnel going through California to make high speed travel possible you know to these two points and bypass all of this other bullshit and they're like holy shit let's throw money at his ass make it happen make it happen he's like oh okay fucking sit down already settle down and then he gets some students and some peeps he says while i'm making while i'm making the car of the future from scratch by the way i'll work on putting together this tube that sends people hundreds of miles per hour from point a to point b and they're working on it yeah coming up with it and meanwhile he's like tackling other ideas and he's just kind of like this engineer who seems to have fun with life because what did he do he produced a fucking flamethrower we're talking about something you might use to do creme brulee with but in a massive scale like in a in a military toy sort of way and then he sold 20 million dollars worth of it the next day for fun he even puts a post, this is incredibly dangerous, and you should not buy this, particularly if you don't like to have fun. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm sort of misquoting him there, I'm sure, but I'm not far off from it. See, I, I could see him ex uh, kind of in conflict with the whole space travel Mars thing, sending your car off into orbit. But he would be the kind of person that could push the development of VR to get to the point 
where the Oasis could exist. He has the uncanny ability to not only take vision, but not let anyone else tell him the limits to his vision. Like the idea of reusing rockets is something that I've often thought it's ridiculous that the idea is that stage one goes into space. Oh, and it gets destroyed. Stage two gets separated from stage three. Oh, and it just floats around until it crashes. You know, halfway to the moon, we're going to eject stage three. Oh, and that's just going to float around. in sp- It's like we're going to throw money out of the earth. <laughs> and just let it, let it fall back. Every fucking time, we're just going to just – that's just the cost of going to space. And here he comes up with the idea, no, fuck that. We're going to land a tower, like taking off on a top-heavy thing and balancing it while going hundreds of miles per hour hard enough. But then we're going to turn that shit right around, and we're going to land that. Yeah. You know wh- – in the in the fucking ocean. What watching the video stream of that live was the closest thing I've ever seen to magic. It it's 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 phenomenal. It is phenomenal. And and the fact that he didn't and you're talking about the most recent yeah. one where the two came down at the same yeah, time. Oh, that was fucking unreal. When I saw that I got chills. I was like, no fucking way. And and I you could probably have seen something like that in in a passing cartoon or an animation or anything and just thought, meh. But the fact, the fact that I knew that we had these two rockets just landing themselves almost at the same time was a uh, surreal. Yeah, it was amazing. It, and, and th- yeah, it, it was, uh, it was so incredible to watch and it, it got my entire office to kind of stop what they were doing and just watch the live stream. It was incredible. That's that is exactly what happened with us. Our whole department kind of hovered around one of the screens, and when we watched that come down, we were like, "That did not just happen." <laughs> like, I, I, like somebody said, and they landed too at the same time, as if there was like a pilot that was coordinating the dance of the two coming down. In reality, they're both automated. You could put five up, twenty up, one up. They would all land themselves, and they all knew where they needed to go. So, you do it once. You could do it 10 times at the same time. But still, to see the two rockets land at the same time, it was just kind of, like you said, the closest thing to magic yeah. that you might see because it's so incredible to watch. Uh, and the fact that the the main center tank didn't make it all the way, thats it's just a matter of time because that had to land in the ocean. Yeah. And the landing in the ocean's always been tricky. But the fact that he's taken the vision, I should say he has progressed through the limitations that everyone else has tried to put on his vision and somehow made it work. I think that he's making electric cars the way he is and that he's pushing electric stations and that people are actually buying it. And it's not just a, a fad is, is just economic. He's a fucking wizard. He is, he is as close to a, a, a mage that I could imagine both technologically and business wise. So if I had to imagine somebody who could push the forefront, if if he came out and said, I'm going to make the Oasis real, I, I knew it would yeah, happen. Yeah. Like, how could, you, how could you not just be like, take all my money, make this happen? Yeah. I'll take a hundredth of a share. I don't care. <laughs> that That is a Kickstarter that I would be willing to wait 10 years to see come oh, to fruition. Yeah. 
and I would donate to it today because uh, I know that he would get it done because he's gotten other more, I, I believe, honestly, more miraculous things. He's made more miraculous things happen. And the vision for the Oasis, I think, is less complicated than what he has already done today. He could probably do it in a few months if he really wanted to. <laughs> Maybe. Got to stretch that. You got you to have stretch goals for that Kickstarter, right? Yeah. Okay. Maybe. Yeah. If, but if I was like, a, if I was an initial investor in Kickstarter, I, I would love it if it was kind of like I'd get my own building on one of the planets. Yeah. Wouldn't that be fucking cool? Get a build, get or get to design a building, or get your own asteroid. Yeah, your own space, right? You're you're not only buying a, a ship or a space in the Oasis, but you're buying a plot of land. That would be pretty. Yeah, think about it. Think about the appreciation on that investment. Oh yeah, it's, you could sell it. Yeah, some sort of land somewhere. So, what is there anybody that you were thinking that you might stick into the virtual White House of the Oasis? Uh, the only place I went was kind of more towards the uh, the geek slash sci fi realm. Uh, and you can cut this out if it sounds stupid, but I put down Joss Whedon because he's such a great uh, sci-fi and visionary. Yeah, yeah, he's an orchestrator, and and he has again is another individual with vision. And while his savvy is more towards making movies, when you think about what it takes to make software these days. Writing video games is like producing a movie. You've got a yeah. storyline. You've got a general plot. You should have some character growth, both in the person who's playing the game and potentially the environment around them. Uh, and for something as big as the Oasis, you need a thread to carry that through. And Joss Whedon, shit, of anybody, that would work. Yeah, I would think so. And here's a guy I... who mixed the Wild West with space. And I did not uh, think it was going to work, but it was one of my favorite shows. Yeah, I'm in the middle of rewatching that for like the fifth time now. Oh. All right, so we roll into what is on his screens. And, of course, to the left, because this is his fortress, he has a ton of screens showing videos of the various security cameras and hangars and hallways in his fortress, to which my first thought was, why? Boring. Well, not just boring, but if boring. no one can come to your asteroid without exactly. your permission, why do you need cameras? Why would you even have that on? Why would there be a, a panel of, of television screens if you know no one's coming? Yeah, that was a that was bizarre. Like, I mean, even if it had the little bit of excitement of the cameras scanning from left to right over and over again, I just don't see that being a very exciting way to spend your time. But another set of televisions was tuned in on the peeps that he's kind of watching from a distance, but but through their POV, which in this situation is the acronym for Personal Oasis VidFeed but we would know it as point of view. And I thought that was interesting because at the very least, while he seems to be distant from the peeps that he cares about, he still has their channels up. And evidently these are like their YouTube channels where they can post whatever they want. I guess in this time and day, the, the copyright has expired on nearly all the stuff being displayed. So it's, 
you're free to post whatever you want, television show wise, and then get paid for the commercials. Yeah. I thought it was very interesting how he's got a monitor set to Artemis's channel. Mm-hmm. He's got one set to H's channel, even though their um their lineup is pretty consistent. But he doesn't have the die show on a feed because well, they're playing samurai movies like they always do. Right. I thought that was a strange omission. Uh maybe it's just I it, was it an omission? Because I remember we there is a point where we do get to, and I don't want to jump there quite yet because it is a large segment, but there is a point where he does mention the fact that they do have a feed. But did he say he didn't have it on? Or that yeah, he, he said just... that he said that he didn't even bother putting it on because they always have samurai movies on. Well, I guess but, there's just so many but times. It's, Go it's, ahead. But but he refers to um Artem Artemavision having her usual Monday evening fair, Square Pegs, Electra Woman, Dina Girl, or Electra Woman and Dina Girl, mm. and Wonder Woman and Isis. And that's he just makes it sound like, oh, that's what she always does on Mondays. Okay. And he also has H's channel up. He has H's is- channel, which he, I don't think he gets into whether or not it's standard H fair. Well, he said that it's it's eighties wrestling, yeah. which in my mind sounds very standard H fair. Yeah, H exactly. Is... It sounds like it would be exactly what H would do because he's into the the death matches and think why wouldn't he be playing that kind of stuff? Right. So he's got two two of his uh, monitors focused on uh, his two friends that are playing the exact same shit every day, right? But not these other two guys because they're always playing samurai movies. So is that a reflection of the fact that he ha- has historically or he's historically had a relationship with a friendship with H he, and he's romantically interested in Artemis, but Dido and, Sh- and Shoto are, you know, they're just kind of on the periphery. Don't need to tune in. Well, and keep in mind that Dido and Shoto aren't necessarily his friends. Or, well, I guess the other two really aren't his friends anymore either. But it, they're not people that he's really close to. Well, yeah, that's that's kind of my uh, where I'm headed with that is that he makes a point to say that he's not even going to bother with their program. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if this is just another if this is a reinforcement of the fact that um, there are two members of the high five that he has some kind of relationship with. And he's just kind of aware of but not tuning into the die show. Because and that's a reflection on their kind of tenuous relationship. Yeah, or at least a reflection on the fact that they're. Here's how I saw this part of the book, and we're kind of jumping ahead just a smidge, but we'll jump back to Artemis and and H more in depth here in a second. But he's in his he's in his lair, and he's really on the outs with two of his friends, and when I'm listening to the feeds that these people have that that H and Artemis have. They're not just television shows. They're a reflection of the personalities of the friends he wish he had closer. When you're talking about Artemis, the shows that she has on is like you mentioned. Uh, the Square Pegs, Electro Woman and Diana Girl, Wonder Isis, Woman. Wonder Woman. These are television shows that reflect strong female leads. They're superheroes. They're quintessentially good which not all heroes are like you have your anti-heroes that aren't necessarily good, but they're not really bad. They're not 
evil peeps. Now these are these are quintessentially good intended superheroes, for the most part, at least. Uh, and I would imagine that if you watched this station, that would kind of feel like having that person near you, like the personality of Artemis comes through in these television shows. So having her feed on is as close as he can get to her right now. It's as much as he can feel her personality from a reflection through these television shows, I'd imagine. And when we talk about H, same kind of situation. H is into the 80s wrestling. I mean, that's the one thing that he touched on, at least. And H is this sort of combative, uh, competitive warrior in the Oasis. That's how H makes his money. And the, the 80s wrestling kind of falls back to that because it's a lot of show. It's a lot of of bling. Uh, and it's still very competitive, and it still has a large fan base cheering and rooting on and that kind of thing. So I'd imagine that there is and, – and on top of that, 80s wrestling had a lot of back-and-forth banter between the different wrestlers. Oh, you're right. Yeah, so that, that would have definitely reminded Parzival of his own banter with H. Yeah, there's this bleed-through of personality – reflected in the shows in their channels. And when we look at Parsival's, his is Kikater, Specter-Man, Space Giant, Supita-Man. We're talking about characters that are kind of space-bound, I guess, sort of. Like, I've looked up a little bit, maybe not so much Supita-Man, but some of these other ones. He had Misfits of Science and Riptide, but he replaced that with episodes of Silver Spoon. So just, did you ever watch Misfits of Science or Riptide? No, but I've definitely watched Silver Spoons. Misfits of Science didn't last long. There was one season. It had just a handful of episodes. It had great potential. If you will, it was kind of like the rejects of X-Men. Okay. But it was a group of, of rejects that came together to solve problems. And kind of the same for Riptide, too. You had a, a small group of peeps. You had the one dude that had the helicopter, and, and they would kind of they would so they would get together and solve problems. So what he's really saying is is that he's no longer part of a group of rejects that kind of tie together to go do stuff anymore. Now he's just saying, "I just wish I had my family," which he's pulled silver spoons into. Hmm. That's really so looking I, very deep into that one. In in my oh. mind, it's I've lost my family of misfits. And I'm really missing that family unit connection. And that's just swapping out those two sets of shows. It kind of reminds me of uh, earlier in the book when he's watching Family Ties and kind of has mm -hmm. like this weird longing for the those simpler days where problems were so simple they could be solved within a 30-minute episode or an hour-long uh, episode if it was something really serious. Oh, right. Right. Yeah. Uh, and the Die Show. The samurai movies, uh, you know, th those two are not really detailed in the book. Like their personalities and, and their growing is really more a matter of whether or not they warm up to the other peeps that are competing. But it's very simple. It's samurai movies are all about honor and a strict code of guntering. And that's that's a flatline situation. That's just how they are. That's how they see the world. And if you turn on that channel and you just see a bunch of samurai movies, that is, quite frankly, a reflection of how they've been drawn so far. So I kind of see the television shows as, as the only way that he has to connect to the personalities of the people he's lost. Yeah, yeah that, that's, a, that's a great observation. 
So if you were to create a station or a a POV, what would you stick in it? Oh boy, uh, I would. Uh, whenever I get asked these questions about, uh, or in the context of the book, I try to stick with uh, things that have to do with either the '80s or like things that were uh, important to me in my uh, in my youth, in my when I was a youngin. Um, so if I had to st- start rattling off TV shows that I used to watch lovingly in those days, uh, it, I mean, the first one is Seinfeld without, Mm -hmm. without question. Uh, other shows that were just very near and dear to my heart. You know, you got the wonder years, uh, different strokes all in the family, uh, growing pains and silver spoons, uh, family ties, uh, what else? A was lot, there? a lot of sitcoms. Oh yeah, a lot of sitcoms. You know, Cosby Show, Who's the Boss, uh, Golden Girls. Yeah, I was a Golden Girls fan and still am. My daughter is a Golden Girls fan. Oh, it's a great so, show. Yeah, great, great show. I remember having to watch Mash because my parents watched it and mm. didn't really get an appreciation for it till later in life. But uh, that's a great show. Uh, what else did I watch back in those days? Uh, a Saved by the Bell was was great. Uh, well, it's not really great, but uh, definitely a. It a, was at the time. A, at the time, it was pretty. Uh, it was good stuff. Uh, I remember watching Alf. Uh, that was. Oh. Um, what else was there? Perfect Strangers. Balki Bartakamus. Is that how he pronounces it? Uh, I just remember. The, I just remember the Balki part. Yeah. Uh, uh, just so many great shows from from uh, from those days. Uh, if I was going to throw in some movies, I mean, pretty much the entire Mel Brooks catalog would be in there. Mm. Blazing Saddles. Oh yeah, uh, Spaceballs, uh, just all that stuff. Uh, History of the World. Uh, all, oh, just so many, so many great movies. Uh, and I would venture to say that. Nearly any 1980s film by uh, Zemeckis and Spielberg would be in there. All right, all right, yeah. Uh, Got to throw in Firefly because Firefly's fucking awesome. Right. Uh, and for some real, uh, more some of the more uh, educational shows from those from my really young years. Um, uh, let's see, Three, Two, One, Contact. I have some memories of watching that. Very vague. Three, two, one. Hold on, hold on. Three, two, one. Contact. Yeah, it was. Uh, Is it? Was that kind of like a? Was that like a like an electric company? Slash, yeah, it was kind of like Sesame that. Sesame Street kind of thing. Yeah. All right. All right. I I, re- I barely remember that. Yeah, I have. Yeah, I barely remember it too. But uh, I should go on YouTube and find some videos of it. Um, what else was there? Mister Wizard. Fuck yeah, Mister Wizard. Mister mm, Wizard was fucking awesome. Yeah. Uh, what else did I watch then? Uh, Square One was another one of those uh, educational programs. Okay. Oh, that's a pretty big list so far. That's a pretty fucking huge list, man. That's like at least a few days worth of content. I, I'm surprised you didn't throw in like a, some Bill Nye because Bill Nye back in the day, you know, 20 or 30 years ago when Bill Nye was doing Bill Nye the Science Guy in Seattle, uh, it was silly and it was fun. YouTube that shit, man. It's it's pretty phenomenal. It was uh, early 90s. But if I was to stick stuff in, in my channel, I, 
I would want to play on the fact that people are looking for the key and they're watching my channel because they're thinking I'm going to give something away. Okay. I like this angle. So first off, right off the bat, I'd have to throw in all the episodes of Transformers and G.I. Joe. Oh, yeah. Fuck yeah. When I would... When I came home, that's what I watched. When we talked about toys, Transformers and G.I. Joe, like we had nearly the entire collection of G.I. Joe. I don't even know where the hell that shit is today. That's like a fortune. And we had like the the aircraft carrier, all of the planes, the helicopters, just freaking nearly everything. Oh, yeah. You, like you could parents, probably put a kid through college with that stuff. If I Yeah, if we still had it today. And the Transformer stuff too. Like it, I remember it being way more complex and way more fun. Like today, I look at the toy store and, and I think they're like, it's, this is the reproduction of what you had when you were younger. And I'm like, no, that looks like garbage. <laughs> and it could be that at the time, it was advanced. But in comparison to, today, to today's stuff, it's garbage. But the G.I. Joe stuff, no way. There are no figurines on the market that even comes close to the arm's ability to rotate and bend the rubber band in the middle that kept the waist to the, the torso. There's nothing like that. It's all cheaply made. Nothing is as detailed as, as those toys were in that period of time. Everything right now is garbage in comparison to that. So I would have those cartoons. I, I would fuck with people by putting the Dungeons and Dragons cartoon up. <laughs> And I think I would litter it with 80s car, 80s. I would litter it with 80s commercials. Definitely. Like all the serial commercials, everything that you might see during the Saturday morning cartoon lineup, I would totally litter it with that. I might even have like an entire weekend that's just 80s commercials. Definitely. Absolutely. And then just to fuck with them, I'd put Land of the Lost. <laughs> just to mix it up a bit and they'd be like wait we're just watching G.I. Joe and now we're talking Land of the Lost there's gotta be a fucking connection nope just messing with you just fucking with you exactly I think that's how it would light up I'm not even sure I would put a whole lot of movies because as a kid in the 80s it was really more about the Saturday morning cartoons than anything else what about Pee Wee's Playhouse would you throw that in there fucking didn't like peewee's playhouse i never watched it i i think i've only seen two episodes it was like peewee's playhouse where where morpheus comes in and he's a cowboy uh <laughs> i don't know if you know that but what, what was his name cowboy wasn't cowboy curtis cowboy curtis i think is what it was that's fucking lawrence fishburne that's morpheus no way yes <laughs> oh my god it's it's shocking like i went to watch that again because somebody had mentioned peewee's playhouse i think maybe ryan had oh my god it is i must be fucking missing something so i went back and watched it and i'm like no this still sucks to me because ryan and john were always like oh my god peewee's playhouse is fucking awesome i'm like i did not get that and (laughs) i went back and watched that in the christmas episode and those were the only peewee playhouse shows that i had seen so maybe those were the big ones, right? Maybe there was a more regular show that he did that I just totally missed. Uh, but then I stumbled across the fact that Lawrence Fishburne was Cowboy Curtis. Yeah, I just saw a uh, screenshot of that. And uh, oh, my God. So, yeah. So that's what I would populate my my television station with. And it it would be part throwback, part just to fuck with people. Because let's face it, if you're really trying to get people to continue watching, 
and you know that people are going to like hang on to every video you stick up there, then you're going to want to put up shit that's just, you know, short, repetitive, and may even seem like it coincides with the shit you're working on. Yeah. I kind of took the angle of I'm going to put on what I want to watch for funsies. Yeah. I might do like a private station that's just a lineup of my favorite movies randomly. Hey, you can you and can just, set up as many monitors as you want. Evidently. A whole room. Half of them looking at nothing. <laughs> Monitoring the security that no one's going to get past. <laughs> All right. So I want to pitch back a little bit because this is where we drill down into his loneliness. And he reflects back using the POV as a nice segue into basically how he's been harassing Artemis. And let's just call it for what it is. He's desperate. He's sending emails, phone calls, chat requests. Ugh. That's all getting blocked. She's not putting up any more blog posts, uh, which I think is kind of odd because, you know, I would think that her blog post would be more popular than anything now. And that more people would be reading it just to figure out what she's doing. But I got to wonder if she's way more serious about the content. Yeah, I, I think she's if egg she, hunting. Do you think that she would be afraid to say something to give something away, even on a blog? I, I mean, she's she seems to have done a good job of not letting people on for the uh, finding the the getting through the first clue. So I don't think that was really the issue. I think that part of the reason why she kicked Parzival out to the door was to focus on the hunt because she has this, you know, uh, this higher goal in mind. She wants to, you know, save the world. So why would she? She's so close to being able to win the contest that why would she waste time with the blog posts? Like she's got to focus on getting that. Uh, and finding the the finding the jade key. I mean, she's got the jade key. She's got to oh, find the first, find the second gate. Right, and he's even gone so far as to let's face it, waste time not looking for the egg to go and stand for two hours holding a boombox over his head, playing <sighs> in your eyes. in your eyes by Peter Gabriel. Which don't get me wrong, under any circumstance, I think is romantic as fuck. Well, yeah, anyone who's seen that movie would should think so. Yeah. And the movie being Say Anything that has John Cusick and Ion Sky in it, 1989. Not their best movie, but just it has moments in it that are fantastic and iconic, and that's one of them. Yeah. Well, and it's just kind of permeated through pop culture. Like, you see it parodied every now and then. Yeah. But as romantic as that is, I, I kind of wonder if her urgency to block off everything except for the hunt, and let's just make some assumptions here that maybe she's as into Parzival as he is into her, that her motivation for getting the key as soon as possible is so that she can then start talking to him. Like maybe their perspective towards each other is different. His is, I'm desperate to see her now. Maybe hers is, I really need to get this key because I really like this guy and I want to see him again. And I can't do that until I've gotten until I've gotten the egg. Now, you might have to do a little bit of editing of this because I'm trying to look at this up while I'm uh while we're talking here. But in say mm -hmm. anything, doesn't she like break off ties with Lloyd because she's got to focus on like getting into that special school or something? 
it's been a while because I know it, it's something about her getting into a special school and then her dad gets arrested for, I think, laundering, yeah, laundering money, money. Through, their, through the through the, the nursing home thing. And then he ends up pitching going, going to France for whatever the fuck reason. I, the plot to, in that movie made absolutely no fucking sense to me. It just kind of meandered along and then ended up with them on an airplane. And the last scene in the airplane I thought was great, too. Yeah. Like I said, it's like it's like speckled with the coincidences that bring these two unlikely individuals together and then the charming personality and attraction that they've got that leads to them going getting on a plane and going to France for no particularly great reason. So looking at the uh, the summary of the plot on Wikipedia, it does say that uh, Diane tells Lloyd she wants to stop seeing him and concentrate on her studies. Oh. Oh wow. Yeah, okay. All right. I didn't know that. Like it's been a while since I've seen the movie. I've seen it a few times, but I just kind of glossed over that part, I guess. Yeah, it it's been a few years since I've seen it, but uh yeah, that kind of that part came back to me. it's like, oh, he's he's being uh Lloyd Dobler right now. Literally. Yeah, literally. <laughs> literally, but also sort of coincidentally or metaphorically, you know, like in the same way, like the same circumstances happening. So I could imagine him like seeing, watching that movie for the 200th time. And now it hitting him that I'm Lloyd Dobler in this situation. Oh, yeah, I mean, It goes back to some of our conversations from earlier chapters where uh, this is the only way he knows how to interact with people. It's through all this uh, pop culture. Yeah. Like it's not enough to say, Hey, I'm standing outside your window holding a boombox. And that should be romantic in and of itself. It's to say, I recognize that I am this character in this movie, but you are that character in the same movie, and we are in the same situation. And won't you please just come to your window? Yeah. Let's go fly to England together. <laughs> uh, so I'm almost hesitant to, to ask the next question, oh. but I think it's potentially interesting. And maybe we skip over it depending on how personal, but what's the most romantic slash desperate thing you've done for someone? Most desperate or romantic thing I've ever done. What what dumbass shit have you done for love? I don't know. See, I'm I'm kind of the uh I'm the kind of person that once uh once I'm over with something, I try to repress those things. Um so I actually have a very difficult time remembering uh some you know, rather long relationships that I should be able to remember more vividly, but I just don't. <laughs> it's weird. No, I, I'm there. I'm there with a few. A few peeps, I'm there. Uh, I know, you got me stumped a little bit on this one. All right, chew on it, and I'll come okay. back to it for a second. I'll, I think... The first one that came to mind was there was a gal named Krista, I want to say. It's sad that I don't know that I remember her name. I think it was Krista, Kristen. I don't know. It was, it was college, but <clears throat> I was really pulling, putting on the moves. Uh, we went on some date, and then I blindfolded her, which under any circumstance would be creepy and considered kidnapping. <laughs> It was Christmas time, so I drove her to this one house in Issaquah, Washington, where the entire yard 
you know the that one old couple that just collects fucking Christmas lights over and over, and at some point they become a a power grid spectacle for an entire neighborhood. So I took her there and I got her out of the car and I walked her into the midst of all these flashing lights at this one house that, that was like open to the neighborhood. Like people would park to walk through it. It was nearly like an event. And then I pulled off the, off the blindfold and she was in the midst of all of these Christmas lights and this gargantuous setup at this one house. Which, again, when you boil it down, is basically me kidnapping somebody, blinding, folding them, and then bringing them to a stranger's house. But it was way more romantic. Her response to that was super cool. That's good. No restraining orders? (laughs) No restraining orders. No legal issues whatsoever there. Uh, uh, That was was at least – and then that relationship broke up a month later. Eh, It happens. So needless to say, it did not have staying power, albeit it was very impressive. And for those listening, do not try this now. <laughs> Don't recommend. <laughs> or you do it with somebody that's comfortable with these sorts of things. You might be able to find a partner on like FetLife, for example. <laughs> this is 50 Shades of Blinking Lights. Uh, oh, that sounds pretty good. Yeah, it gets worse. All right, but but nothing crazy that sticks out. I, I also I also rode like in the middle of the night. On my bike down a mountain in the middle of the fucking night, did I mention? Did. To drive to this girl's house that was a, a friend of mine. Uh, and and just hang out, actually. So nothing really happened. But, you know, it was still a, it was still like six miles. I drove six miles on my bike in the middle of the night down a mountain. If I haven't already mentioned that, that three night. times. That's, that's some risky-ass shit. That's the kind of shit that gets yeah. you killed. You know, like, fly off the side of the mountain. Well, he was driving his bike in the middle of the night to go meet a girl. Oh, okay. Well, that kind of makes sense. But so many stories start out that way. All right. So let's move on. He mentions breaking up with H, and we learn that Parzival and H have this fight that ends with him saying that H would never have even found the copper key without his help, which is incredibly insulting given the relationship that they've got where they respect each other's knowledge. It's basically to say, you are less intelligent than I am. And immediately afterwards, H just hangs up the phone. And that's the end of that relationship for the moment. Yeah. Parzival's really doing well for himself right now. (laughs) It's awfully dickish. (laughs) But he says that it was a strained relationship to begin with because things had kind of changed. And I I get that. I was going to say, like, he alluded to this happening right after uh, he got off the phone with H, or, or at one point either H was about to go through the uh, the Tomb of Horrors or is after the Tomb of Horrors. He's like, he wondered how their relationship was going to change. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You're right. There was kind of that, that cloud on the horizon yeah, and- sort of thing. Like they were, yeah. They were having guarded conversations before, but a lot of it was like pie in the sky. Like, oh, wouldn't it be great if, if we could, you know, if we could get find the egg? And then all of a sudden, it's like, oh, this could actually happen. We better be careful now. And it even it even feels like maybe there's a resentment. Like they're, they're like imagine if you were in that situation where pride is huge, particularly pride in your knowledge and in your skill set for for finding the egg. And then knowing deep down that you're kind of indebted to the one person that's not only your friend, but a direct competitor. 
And that feeling that you owe somebody something kind of in I've had a few situations where things just would get awkward with that particular person because something had happened that had kind of taken it to a place where all of a sudden there's an elephant in the room that we can't talk about. And in this situation, that uncomfortable elephant is that H owes his key to Parzival. Like H did not get it legitimately. And that's the kind of shit that H and Parzival would insult all the other Gunters about, is not having the intelligence to potentially get the key legitimately. And now H is in a position where he kind of admits he didn't get the key legitimately. And then Parzival basically rubs it in by saying, you're just like every other Gunter who doesn't get their yeah. shit legitimately. It, it's kind of the... I don't think you actually see Parzival be any much more of a dick than right now. <laughs> and he admits it! You know, he's like, oh, I fucked that right up. So it, it kind of leaves him in a position where he doesn't have a choice but to reach out to the two people that aren't so pissed off at him. <laughs> it's like he's ruined the two closest friendships he's had. Who else will talk to him? Ah, maybe the Dice Show will yeah. talk to him. And segue to the uh, Ultraman challenge. Exactly. And this was a long, this was a few pages worth of description uh, where. Parzival uncovers the secret extension for Shodai Urotoraman. You know what? I'm just Uro fucking Turaman. that. Say it again. Urotoraman? Urotoraman. Urotoraman. I'm probably doing it wrong, too. but uh, That sounds way better than what I said. I've listened to Will Wheaton say it, so if it's wrong, blame him. And the goal being to, to get the beta capsule to produce Ultraman, which I knew nothing about. Before this book, I might add, like I had to go to YouTube and look some of that shit up. Yeah, I, because I, it, I know nothing about it either, but I own the DVDs now. And how fucked up is is a is a, a prize where you become a god for three minutes, where you can ultimate like you become a giant and you can fuck shit up for three minutes a day. Well, I mean, have you watched Ultraman? I have not. Not all, not not a lot of it, but I get that that's a thing. That's basically how it works. Is uh... He has a limited amount of time to turn into Ultraman. And in the show, since you know way more about it than myself, is it also a situation where if you don't turn it off, you die? Uh, like, is there I that threat? I remember if in, the, if in the first episode they get into the details of that, but uh, I think it's pretty much implied. I don't know if that's actually specifically said, but it's been a little while since I've uh, been been able to watch it. It is not a high production value show, mm -hmm. but it's kind of fun to watch. Is yeah. it one of those where they're in a suit yeah. and they have like miniature buildings? Miniature buildings, and, uh, and he refers to the kung fu moves of Ultraman, but uh, they are not graceful. And it's basically, you know, two people in suits falling onto miniature scenery. Got it. Got it. I'm going to have to go back and watch some of that. I still need a clear picture of that. And I just, I'm just not steeped in it, which is just me being a lazy gunter, I guess. We'll let it, we'll let it slide. 
There's time. There's a movie coming out. Oh, oh wait, we won't get to see Ultraman in the movie, will we? No, we won't. They did not work out the licensing for Ultraman. And from what I understand is that they tried. Like the licensing for Ultraman is currently in limbo between two companies yeah. trying to buy licensing. And and they could not settle on the licensing to then determine who would be able to use it. Like they wanted to use it in the movies, what I heard, but that they could not get licensing because it is currently in limbo. Yeah, I, I feel like there's something more to it than that because if ev- if everybody wanted it to get in there, yeah, I, maybe I just don't know enough maybe about it, and that maybe you know f- a few too many people wanted a little too much money or something. But uh, what a shame because that I was looking forward to seeing Ultraman on the big screen. The biggest concern of I've heard in licensing, particularly with like Star Wars, for example. I said Star Wars. I'm in Star Trek, for example. And the fears that have kept Star Trek from being expanded into, for example, did you know that they were going to do like this huge recreation of the Star Trek Enterprise in Vegas? No, but that sounds fucking awesome. That's what they were going to do. So there was a competition for who would do something in the old part of town. Oh, I know what you're talking about. That tunnel thing. I forget what it's called, though. The Fremont Street Experience. Yes, that. The Fremont Street Experience was what won the bid for what would end up happening in Old Vegas, in the on the Old Strip. But what had been pitched was a full-blown creation of the Star Trek Enterprise, like the the um, the '90s version of that the TNG. Yeah. You know, and, knowing that is going to make me never want to go to Fremont Street ever again. Well, they couldn't get the licensing for it. Like, they were going to. They were on the edge. Ah. There was a huge, huge article written about it and how they had gotten with the right people. They'd gotten licensing. And eventually, they came in and Sony said, you know what? We just don't think that this is going to have the persistence of reputation. We're afraid that it's going to get old fast and that it's going to make us look bad and it's going to degrade the brand in the, in the near future. So we're just not going to do it. Yeah, I could see that being a valid concern. But over time, Star Trek has had a great degree of persistence. So the ability to go to Vegas to see something like that, no matter which enterprise we're talking about imagine because the airport is right next to vegas the strip right yeah flying in you see the enterprise ported uh, on the ground you know it looks like a so awesome next oh to these God. kick-ass hotels right down the street from well what used to be the luxor the giant pyramid i mean even if they eventually tore it down, it still would have been so cool to go aboard the Enterprise. Yeah, fuck yeah. But they just couldn't make that happen. But that's because of licensing. So not only is it a situation where licensing could make a product more valuable, which in this case, I think it would. Like if anything, I'd imagine the licensing issue is two companies trying to own licensing and and work out a deal. And they're like, this movie is going to make this way more valuable, so I'm going to ask for a way bigger price. Yeah, I can see that being exactly where it went and then the other, And then the other company going, do you understand it was just a dude in a shitty costume a bunch around a bunch of styrofoam buildings and some leftover monster suits from another more successful movie? You get that, right? Hey, can you? how much stuff have you gotten into from this book that you spent money on? Uh... 
<laughs> are we including the podcast? Outside of the podcast. <laughs> I'm talking about pop culture things. Uh, you know, not a lot because I, I try to limit the amount of stuff, just stuff that's not useful in my life because I've already got a ton of shit that's not useful in my life or even partially useful that I just don't use. So, for example, the Funko Pop stuff. Oh, yeah. Don't need any I of that. Rarely, I rarely buy that. But you know what? When that came out for sale through Hot Topic, which they have kind of an exclusive deal, and that was last Monday when they released it, I bought the High Five. I bought the um, the full figurines. I did not buy the little Funko Pop uh, you know, cartoony Pictures. ones. That does not that does nothing for me. But the action figure ones I did buy. Yeah, but I yeah. I pre-ordered those on Amazon. Yeah, but you're going to have to wait till March 10th. That's fine. I mean, not that it matters because it's going to come and it's going to go. But you know, my thought was kind of like, oh, that'd be fucky. Yeah, I just I I kind of jumped on it. What can I say? When I saw the price of the Easton book, so Easton Publishing produces these gold leaf edged hardcover signed versions of books and ready player one sold for something in the range of like 130 to 150 dollars or you know five installments of 39.95 which is kind of how they do their shit that book is currently auctioning on ebay for around 500 dollars uh no it's on ebay right now for 600 dollars Son of a bitch. Uh, I feel like I'm going to have something for him to sign that will be very unique and potentially the only one that exists. Uh, what's that? Uh, it's a cop- the copy of Ready Player One I have in Hebrew. What? Yeah. There is, is there only one copy in Hebrew? Is it like the Torah of Ready Player One? No, but... How many of them, if they, you know, that exist, are going to be signed by Ernest Klein? Oh, good point. Good point. Oy vey. Oy. <laughs> that'd be, that would be, that's neat. That's, a, that's an interesting I, I hope he believes me when I say, yes, this is your book. <laughs> that's cool. That's, yeah, you're right. That might very well be the only one. Yeah, so now all of a sudden the copy that I'm using to help me learn the language is going to be one of those one things that I don't want to touch because it's going to be valuable now. <laughs> and that's a fucking good point. Like if you want to learn a different language and it's, there's a particular book you're hinged into that also is written in other languages, that's a great way to tackle it. Yeah. Anyway, back to the book. So they go through 39 episodes. Now, granted, he says it takes like an entire week, 16 hours they- a day. 16 hours a day, 39 episodes, like a recreation of 39 episodes. Now, here's the part that I thought was odd, because when he was talking throughout the book about this ability to take a movie and then play your role in the movie, that's this, isn't it? Well, I mean, he talks about how he would be the main character, but that now that he's got other people, other people play different characters or swap back and forth between the main character and some of the sub characters. But it sounds very much like the movie interaction. Yeah, thing. the flick syncs. Yeah, so, the flick syncs. T- and I thought that came later. Uh, the flick syncs or the, the the Ultraman challenge. Well, I, I I thought that the flick syncs, like what? Think about this. Like it's been six months 
since he's first experienced flick syncs, which to him at the time was completely new. And here we are, six months later, doing a flick syncs. Well, thing. yeah, but uh, remember when he one of his dates with Artemis was going to the planet Goondocks to do the Goonies challenge or the Goonies quest. So it there was no reference that to that being like replaying through the movie. So the, I venture to say that it'd probably be more like an immersive board game version of the movie or these uh, episodes of the show. And that, you know, you're going through the, the show, but you have like little mini challenges to complete the actions that happen. Cause 16 okay. hours a day for a week is going to, blow out of the water the 39 episodes time-wise well i yeah i guess i mean i see what you're saying like you're in that realm it may be that you're not kicked out for not knowing the trivia or not knowing the verbiage maybe it's that you're going through it and you're having to complete it in your own way but not having to memorize all the lines yeah i i maybe i'm I don't curious know. It felt what, like what these challenges really were did, did you know the reference to Mandarax? I did note the reference to Mandarax, which goes back to the book Galapagos by Kurt yeah, Vonnegut. I, I'm aware of that novel's existence, but I did not know the reference until I looked it up. <laughs> I, I, I looked it up a little bit. Evidently, it's reference to this artificial intelligence that can do like nearly anything from rearranging flowers to anything. And that evidently what it's used to do is to quote famous people in ironic moments. So uh, I guess there is like this languagey thing, maybe. I, I've not read the book myself, so now I've actually got to go back and find the real passages. Yeah. But I thought this was kind of a neat throwback or reference to Kurt Vonnegut and maybe even a reference to the fact that that technology is being wasted in certain ways. And we talked about that in our last episode with cell phones that are th tens of thousands. And I wish I could say that that was like an, an exaggeration. Tens of thousands, an order of magnitude more powerful than the supercomputers at NASA in the early 70s, maybe late 60s. That is crazy. And we use it to watch porn and cat yeah. videos and, and Snapchat. And here's the same situation where you have this artificial intelligence that can be used for anything and ultimately is used to pop out famous quotes in ironic moments. Like it's smart enough to just be programmed to kind of be an asshole for fun. Yeah. <laughs> which, which it, it, it is kind of, it, it's an interesting, maybe a little, I'd have to read more onto it and maybe I'm taking it wrong because I'm just have a very shallow understanding in this reference, but that's a lot of what this book is, is technology taken for granted. It's pretty much what it's all about. And in fact, he even goes into that when he starts talking about his job. Oh, yeah. Which is uh, him, him, log him logging into the Oasis, which is him then logging into a version of the Oasis that is a desk. Yeah, a, a virtual <laughs> desk, virtual keyboard, virtual, virtual, virtual. And it sounds like an episode or two of the IT crowd. <laughs> uh, it, 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 like a cross between IT crowd and maybe office space. Yeah. Oh. But But the fact that, and I thought this was just weird, like in these days... Offices are, are kind of growing. They're doing this communal workspace kind of thing. Uh, they're they're making it so that the office space is less office-y and more homey. There are a lot of studies 
that have gone into the fact that allowing your people to customize their desks or their cubes to personalize actually helps to make them productive. It helps to give them some degree of ownership over their role at the business. And that 25 years in the future, people are logging into an oasis where you could make the office look like anything. And what is it? It's a fucking cubicle. Yeah. Just the most boring drone thing you could imagine. Like, it's just like, we don't care. We don't care if they're productive. Fuck it. They're slaves. Well, think about it. You're basically reading a script. So yeah. what, like, yeah. what's the point in the personalization? I mean, uh, it's also not exactly a glamorous job. It's not meant to be. I mean, like he's got a fake, you know, s- stellar resume and that's the best he can get. But when he talks about like people not bothering to look the, look things up on their own, like that just struck a chord with me because uh, at a f- former office that I worked at, I kind of did the IT stuff, even though I'm, I'm not certified in anything. I just have an you know an interest and an ability to not break things. So like I would do that kind of stuff, and the mm-hmm. the, the speed at which people would just throw their hands up in the air and ask for me ask for me to fix something was astounding. And that's, I think that's kind of a, an interesting reflection to Mandarax, which is this potential waste of intelligence and resources and giving up your intelligence, throwing your arms in the air and just saying, ah, it doesn't work. Someone help me. So w- w- one thing that I kind of thought was interesting about the existence of the Mandarax software and doing the challenge with uh, Dido and Shoto was that I think it says again in this chapter that Dido and Shoto are fluent in English and Japanese in mm-hmm. a world where they don't really need to be. Yeah, that is interesting. Like you can translate. Yeah, like, like- uh, it, it does kind of point out that the Mandarax software is a little bit buggy when it comes to quests. So there are a lot of words in languages that don't translate well, and I think there's a lot that's lost in translation when you go from one language to another. And on top of that, when you look at everything that we are talking about in this book, as far as what Anorak has said he was interested in, all of the 80s material, a lot of the references are all in English. So to really get it, to really get what the, what the movies are trying to communicate what the music is trying to communicate uh, and what these comic books and these stories and these video games are communicating, you'd have to know English. You'd have to know it really well. Now, of course, their native language, they know really well, and, and they're really engrossed in the samurai stuff, which is why their channel is consumed with it. But if you're going to compete as a gunter seriously at all, you're just going to have to know English. doesn't matter who you are. Because everything that we've talked about I shouldn't say everything, a majority of the stuff that matters in searching for the egg was written in English, composed in English, programmed yeah. in English. I think the book says that they, or pl- implies that they had to have been already fluent in English prior to the hunt, or at least mm-hmm. have been studying it. That Maybe not fluent, fluent, but that maybe this, the the hunt got them even closer to fluency or something like that. But uh, I don't think that they learned English just for the hunt, which I think somebody had wondered if that was the case. Well, but this has been a nice bridge for him. This is a nice place in the book where he can 
admit to a deficiency. A, um, he can, technically, he's leaning on his competitors, which I'm not sure that it's written in that they acknowledge that fact per se. I mean, he at least acknowledges that it would be misleading in the translation. But what he's really saying is, in the one thing that I feel that I could do this, I don't know the language well enough, and not knowing the language would get me killed, potentially. But in the realm of making money, what we end up figuring out here is something that we had talked about last chapter, which is what does you know how much of what he make makes consumes it how much of what he makes is consumed by his bills or his expenses. And we were talking about how expensive it must be to have the hotel room and the rig and the hardware. And he does mention rent, electricity, food, water, hardware repairs, and upgrades. But then he flips into the cost for the Oasis, like teleportation fees, power cells, like something I didn't even think about, ammunition, and that he buys that in bulk. And I thought, holy crap, like this is super incremental. Yeah, could you imagine just the, the folks at GSS just kind of, you know, doing uh, snow angels, but with gold coins, with all the money they're making on all these ones and zeros? Could you imagine playing any first-person shooter or any game where you had to pay nine ninety-five to buy more ammunition to play the game? I yeah. would stop playing. Uh, I I hate spending nine-nine cents on anything in like the iOS App Store. But you can't. You obviously you can't shoot lasers because lasers suck power from your power cells. Uh, and then spacecraft repairs. How risky are you going to be when somebody like throws a missile at the left side of your ship, and then you're like, "Fuck, that's going to be a half a million credits." <sighs> like, forget forget survival. You're just like, "Shit, that's I just had yeah. that waxed." Oh man, some <laughs> digital bird shot on my fucking spaceship. I, I mean, I kind of like the idea that that your stuff can get sort of tattered, that your things can look used. Like you can take bullets and, and the bullet holes would remain until you spent money to remove them or get it repaired. So I kind of dig that, uh, that your shit isn't always going to be brand spanking new just because you yeah. respawn. You're just not a fan Oasis. of the extortion. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> to put it bluntly. And and this idea that teleportation fees are going up. Oh, my God. I mean. Why? What, where's the where's the pull on resources for that? Yeah, is there someone at GSS saying, "Hmm, how can we, how can we be more like the dudes that everyone hates?" Well, economically, how does that make sense? Because it's not like if there are more people doing it, is there a pull on resources to send somebody's avatar from one thing to another? But if you go from one website to another and you do that more frequently, it's the same bandwidth. But if you go to twenty websites versus two. That they shouldn't cause you for switch. They shouldn't cost you more to switch from one website to another. You see what I'm getting? Yeah, at? I get you. And that and, and that's the charge that it feels like is going on here. The bandwidth is the same. You're going to be in the oasis regardless of whether or not you're on the same planet or twenty planets. It, so I was kind of like, that's weird economics. Like, if more people are doing it, are you trying to stifle that down by making it more expensive? But then I, why? I, the don't fuck know. I, do I think that Corey Doctor and Will Wheaton better get their act together. They're not they're not handling the Oasis economy very well. Or maybe it is, and I'm just not a good economist. Eh. There was a Bitcoin program that came out called CryptoKitties. And 
You, you hadn't heard of this. No. Okay, well, it's, it was a thing. You could spend Ethereum to purchase a generation of CryptoKitty. And the gist is that if you bought a generation zero, first off, it would become incrementally more expensive. Uh, a generation zero would pop out less frequently over time and would be incrementally more expensive than the last price of the last generation zero crypto kitty. So the idea was that you could buy a certain generation and bring them together, have your crypto kitty and another crypto kitty have sex, and that it would create a permutation through this algorithm that would produce sort of a genetic code that would then give you a different crypto kitty. Of, of the next generation. So generation zero is first generation. Maybe you bought a generation five crypto kitty. You bred it with a, another generation five. You would produce a generation six. And that generation six would have a refresh time for having sec sex that was lower than its higher generation. and But it would inherit certain characteristics based on this algorithm. And that's how it would produce value because some traits wouldn't pop out except for very specific permutations of this larger "quote unquote" genetic code. Anyhow, the roundabout, <laughs> the short version of that story. <laughs> it was so popular that the guys that built it decided to up the charge for breeding and transferring crypto kitties from one person to another. So it went from something along the lines of like fifty cents to like five or six dollars per transaction because there was just so many, and and for no reason other than. So they were like, it's happening so frequently. Let's charge them more because they're evidently not stopping. How'd that work out? Well, they raised millions in a matter of a week in profit. Holy shit. There are some that are for sale for millions of dollars, but the most expensive cat that sold, that actually sold, was for 250 Ethereums, which equals $113,000. Now, I'm in the wrong business. What I want you to do is search for CryptoKitty. I, I promise porn will not come up Thank this time. Thank the Lord Almighty. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, these little cartoon cats? Yes. And they don't do anything. They don't. It's just a picture. What you're buying is, is a crypto. It, it is an encrypted genetic code that produces a picture. And different permutations of combined genetic, quote-unquote, genetic codes that are baked into your purchase. So all of this rides on cryptocurrency. Uh, this is just about the stupidest thing I've ever heard of. <laughs> and people are spending real money on this. Somebody sold one. Somebody sold a crypto kitty for $113,000. I give up. <laughs> I am definitely doing something wrong. <laughs> Holy shit. So so the idea being that I suppose if something becomes incredibly popular, I could kind of see somebody wanting to bank a quick buck on it by raising the but price. But they're already worth so many billions. I, I don't know. They're just milking the teat. Maybe they're doing that because they're worried about the future of the company going into the hands of some mystery person. So they figure might as well bank what we can now. It feels like a very short-term profit pull or profit yank because all you're really doing is you're separating the wealthy from the poor when you raise a price like that. When you raise the price of travel anywhere, but let's just say the Oasis, what you're really doing is you're further dissecting the different classes of economy. 
and the poor now can no longer go anywhere even more so, and only the rich have access to move around as much. So again, those whoever the who is governing the oasis really needs to get on that bullshit. Yeah. But to wrap we're gonna wrap this up by spinning back around to Artemis. And I have to imagine the sheer disappointment and terror of seeing that she's found the Jade Key. Yeah. I mean, talk about uh, bringing him down from being, nay, a god to... Nay, kicked him eh, in the nuts. Second. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, playing, you know, now just no longer in the first place. Humbled, I would have to imagine. I, if I saw something like that, I think I would be sick. Well, yeah, I mean, think about how down and low he is to have this uh, to have this happen, and not just by anybody, but the one who uh, scare quotes broke up with him. Yeah, I mean that's that's a kick to the nuts. Oh my god! And and it, it is with that thought that we are going to close up this chapter, chapter twenty. This has been get to the good part. I'm Chris. I'm Aaron. See you then. thing before you go we were in columbus recently uh this show was recorded before we went to columbus but i'm currently editing it after we got back we got a ton of cool stuff to talk about but what i want to do is i want to do a shout out to katie and joanne and these two gals allowed ryan to kind of cut in front of them in line i felt kind of bad but we wanted to be there for ryan to go first since he started the podcast and kind of helped kick everything off so I told them that we'd kind of toss a shout out to them for being so cool and allow them to come up to us. Anyhow, thanks again. The three of us are truly your biggest fans. Catch you next episode.